it's easy just to give everyone a B splint. It's easy. Yeah. But then you will get failures. And then you think, why is that? It's because yeah. you're painting everyone with the same brush. So what I like is putting some logic, some science, some experience behind it to come up with a little system or a solution. That was Dr. Jaz Galati. I'm Dr. Omid Azami, and you're listening to another episode of Newbie and Friends with the Newbie Dentist Podcast. In this episode, I sat down with my good friend and host of the Protrusive Dental Podcast, Dr. Jaz Galati. Dr. Jazz is a general dentist in the UK with a special interest in ortho-restorative dentistry and the conservative management of TMD. In this episode, we cover a lot of broad topics, including management of work-life balance, the management and dealing with the trials and tribulations of everyday dentistry and how to reduce the variability in our work and to make our work more enjoyable. And we also spend a lot of time talking about occlusal splints, diagnosing, prescribing, and management of patients that present to our practices with worn dentition with extra oral symptoms of TMD. And we covered this topic in quite a a fair bit of depth, so I hope you guys do get a ton of value out of it. For those interested in learning more, Dr. Jazz is running a splint course. You can head over to splintcourse.com and you can use the promo code newbie, N-O-O-B-I-E, for a 10% discount on this course, thanks to Dr. Jazz. And if you're interested, you got to do this quite quickly because the next round of enrollments ends on November the 24th. So if you're interested, head over to splintcourse.com, use the promo code newbie at checkout for a 10% discount, or alternatively, you can find the link in the show notes and that'll take you directly to the course. This week's episode of the Mini Implant Audio Residency is brought to you by my good friends at Mordent. Mordent is your proudly Australian-owned and operated partner, driving the charge forward in integrated digital dentistry. Being the only fully integrated local dental company, Mordent offers world-class education, equipment, products, solution, and support. The Mordent team of over 50 specialists are helping thousands of Australian practices to seize the opportunities in digital dentistry, transforming treatment for their dentists and the patients alike. Whether you're seeking to upskill through education or are considering implementation of digital dentistry into your practice, or just looking for some advice, I highly recommend reaching out to the Mordent team. Visit www.mordent.com.au to find out more. I will include their information in the show notes for those interested. As always, if you're new to the Newbie Dentist podcast, thank you for checking us out. Be sure to head back and check out the previous episodes that I've done on the podcast. I've had the privilege of having some amazing guests on the podcast over the past couple of years. If you're returning, thank you for your ongoing support of the Newbie Dentist podcast. I hope this podcast is full of value for you. And if you are getting value, please head over to iTunes and give the show a five-star rating. These ratings help the show get more traction within the dental community. Without further delay, I hope you enjoyed this interview with Dr. Jaz Galati. Welcome back for another episode of Newbie and Friends. I'm really delighted to be joined by a fellow podcaster today, Dr. Jaz Galati out of Reading, United Kingdom. Uh, Dr. Jaz, uh, you had me on your podcast and that was a great experience and uh, I had to sort of get you to come on. I know how busy you are with your time and so I really do appreciate you giving the time to come on the Newbie Dentist podcast and talk a little bit about yourself, the podcast. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about some, some a topic that's become sort of important to both of us, I think, in terms of designing your career, 
work-life balance and sort of being the captain of your own ship and and how that goes throughout your career and how you can be fluid in that situation as well which we were talking about a little bit in the pre-interview and i know your sort of early passion i know obviously career career interest and uh topics of dentistry also change but i know you have a you know strong passion in tmd and occlusion and night guards and things so i'll pick your brain on that a lot because and, and i'll get your comment on this later on actually i've noticed during covid lockdowns of stress and everyone's just coming in with cracked teeth and grinding and clenching so um, i think it's a very topical uh topic as well to talk about today so uh dr jazz thank you for coming on i uh, really appreciate it oh man thank you omid for having me on and for those who haven't listened to the champion mindset episode we did on protrusive thanks so much for coming on i mean your listeners are already used to you sharing all your nuggets and all the things that you read but you really really uh, help my listeners to 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 really master their mindset so that was a really great episode so thanks so much for doing that for me and thanks for having me on today on your podcast to talk about all these things from designing your life the the origins of the podcast and then of course we can get to the nitty-gritty details of occlusal appliances i'm going to slap you for calling it night guard <laughs> <laughs> that's good that's a good I'm start uh, that's why i'm here to learn this is i called this nubian friends because i i want to sort of uh you know use what my friends have learned and you know pick that knowledge and kind of bring it to my own sort of career and that's one of the benefits of being a podcaster you get to be lazy and bring uh cpd or uh, ce to you rather than going out to search for it so um why don't you tell Very us true. a little bit about yourself first of all and um sort of the origin story if you will and then uh, we'll talk about the producer dental podcast which i'm a huge fan of um and then we'll kick on from there yeah, sure. So um, I'm Jazz Galanti. Uh, I'm based in the UK. I qualified from Sheffield in 2013. Uh, and then for, for those who are familiar with the UK, you do like one year, which is like a, a bridge year, like you're, you're like, a, like a junior dentist in a practice. So everyone does that. And at that point, I was really in my head that like I wanted to be this restorative consultant. So I wanted to be someone who is uh, the highest guy at the hospital that, you know, people, all the complex cases get referred to and do these full mouth rehabs and stuff and treat oncology patients. But then after doing some stints in hospital and seeing all the bureaucracy, the politics, the absolute nonsense that goes on there. And then actually I learned that true innovation, Omid, happens in private practice. Yeah. So then I had to get out of uh, the system in the UK. Won't go too much into that. And then I moved to Singapore, uh, which was amazing. Oh, wow. It was like me and, my, me and my wife moved to Singapore. We yeah. were working as dentists. At the same time, we traveled to Bali, India, Australia, uh, went all over on lots of holidays, Bangkok. Uh, it was a great like travel experience, but also yeah. a, a work experience as well. Uh, and then we came back because my wife got homesick. Now, here's the interesting thing, Omid, how the, how the podcast comes into this is that um, people People in the UK, like, like dentists in Australia, like everyone kind of knows each other, right? Yeah. So everyone uh, in, in the UK podcast uh, or in the UK forums, the dentist forums, uh, as soon as someone mentioned on the on the forum, uh, does, does anyone know a dentist in Singapore? Like, how can I how can I work in Singapore? How can I work abroad? So everyone started tagging me. So yeah. when I used to have this like hour long commute. I'd be on the phone to a different dentist every <laughs> evening, okay, uh, telling him the same thing. Yeah, yeah, this is how much you earn. There's no exam. Everyone speaks English. It's amazing. You know, that kind of stuff. And it's a I good tax myself, situation too, I think, isn't it? <laughs> it's a great, oh my God, tax was, tax was amazing. Put it that way. Yeah. I, I, I've never smiled paying tax before, but at that time I was definitely smiling yeah. paying tax. So you're very right there. But yeah. every day I was on the phone to someone else. And I thought to myself, wow, I just take a lot of my time. I like to listen to my audiobooks. I don't, I don't want to have to like speak to a different person for like 30 days in a row telling yeah. them the same story. I thought, if I could record everything I want to tell everyone about Singapore 
in audio and distribute that. And then I found out these things called podcasts exist. And yeah. that's when I started to listen to yours uh, as well um, all those years ago. And you've been doing a wonderful job. So I put the first one out. It was all about um, dentistry in Singapore. And then I started to, you know, let myself out, you know, my own clinical interest, the, how much of a dental geek I am. And there we are. That was the birth of the Protrusive Dental Podcast. That's awesome. It's, it's great that, you know, everyone has these like stories about how things kind of get started. And, um, and then it's amazing always to like, look back and see how far things have come from like that first episode you did to now what you're doing and amazing content and the video around it, the production around it. So it's definitely uh, amazing to see the progress, uh, not just in your podcast, but just like the whole dental space uh, podcasting wise. I, I remember when I started you, I almost knew every podcast that was there. It was like maybe like 10 dental podcasts and you kind of, you had the big players and then you I kind of had everyone that kind of started at a similar time as me. And a lot of those who started at the same time, I did like don't sort of exist anymore to stop like making episodes and things. But now I don't even know how many dental podcasts there would be. There would be like over a hundred, I would say. You're right. And Omid, you know, the funny thing is, the more I read about podcasting, because I've actually I've done some podcasting courses to improve oh, nice. myself as a yeah. podcaster where I can. And what, what they're saying is that podcasting very much is still in its infancy uh, and more and more people are still discovering it a lot of dentists i speak to still don't listen to it uh, yeah. which is why i guess i went down the youtube route as well to get mm -hmm. my content out there so as well as you know apple podcast spotify etc etc people yeah. there's a lot of people who just exclusively watch the videos and stuff which is another way just to learn and i think youtube a shout out to youtube man i learned how to remove wisdom teeth initially on youtube uh, <laughs> i'm sure we've YouTube all university as they say yeah exactly <laughs> no that's great and so tell me a little bit about sort of the uh, for people who aren't familiar, maybe in Australia, who aren't as familiar with the Producer Dental Podcast, sort of like the the, the genre, or like what does it cover mostly? Is this sort of more clinical, more business for people who aren't familiar with it? Is it kind of a full, full sort of scope? Well, I think there are so many um, dental podcasts which are focused on business and money yeah. and insurance and this. Uh, mine's definitely not that. Like mine's like really geeky, extremely clinical. We have the odd non-clinical one, but it's very much a very geeky, clinical, nitty-gritty podcast from a recent episode with Neki Jamal on Wisdom Teeth yes. to um, occlusal acceleration. And, and then the theme is that, you know, every, I can't go more than three episodes without putting something inclusion, having inclusion <laughs> guests, okay? So it, it's my, it's my you know, passion topic, TMD, occlusion, yeah. uh, bruxism, that kind of stuff. So, so that's the, the main focus and hence why with the name Protrusive, I wanted something that was forward thinking and hence oh, Protrusive. Great. It was the only option for me, man. <laughs> that's, it's not a catchy name, and it, it feeds into like you pick up on the dental nerds, right? They'll be like, "Oh yeah, I like that," and they'll 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 kind of come to it. So that's great. All you, right, you so attract your own tribe, right? So it's yeah, like the Trusarati have self-selected themselves <laughs> as these dental geeks who have an affinity towards occlusion. Yeah, no, it's and you've, you've done a great job of building that community around it, and I'm sure a lot of people are getting a lot of value. So um, for those listening, maybe if you're in Australia, you have, you're not familiar with Jazzy, I'll, I'll obviously have the links and everything in the show notes and all that. You can check out his podcast and um, see all the amazing guests and things that you've had on. What are some of your goals for the podcast? I don't, don't want to put you on the spot here, but like in terms of like, you know, fast forward a couple of years, what are you hoping this podcast, the Protrusive Dental sort of uh, entity becomes? Um, I think you'll be able to relate with this as well, Omid, is that the best part of what we do is on the side. Cause yeah, we're very much wet fingered practitioners. We're super busy with that. Uh, we have friends and family and all the social things to do as well. But what the podcast gives us is space to ex express ourselves, uh, a space to create, uh, but the, a, a space to in inspire. And I love, I love, I love getting these messages that, um, you know, I was, I started listening a year ago and it changed my perspective of dentistry or it reignited my passion in dentistry. I'm sure you get flooded with these as well. Uh, and like recently we did one on um, how to make extractions easier and the importance of sectioning and elevating teeth, which I don't think young dentists, especially in the UK, mm -hmm. do enough. I don't know what the situation is like in Australia, 
here, but dentists, uh, young dentists are afraid to section elevate for whatever reason. So yeah. I think that makes your extractions much easier. And then like three days after posting it on YouTube, this young dentist, one year out of dental school, uh, commented saying, thanks to this podcast on my last day as a junior dentist, a DF1 dentist, I was able to take out this tricky molar doing something I'd never done before, i.e. section elevating, thanks to this podcast. And it's that kind of feedback That's that I love. Amazing. So my, my yeah. aim is to, as, as many people as I can get to fall in love with dentistry again, that, that's the aim. Yeah. And we were, we were talking a little bit beforehand in the interview uh, that, you know, they're really, this is like the best time to be a dentist. And I really, you know, sometimes when I'm, when I'm taking out these old amalgams and I'm jealous because I have to like try and put a rubber dam on and isolate these margins to, you know, this like so technique sensitive composites and stuff that we're doing. And I think back, oh man, dentistry would have been so easy back in like the sixties and seventies. We were just like packing tough mire and amalgam. But, but truly though, beyond, beyond like that small niche of it, in terms of learning community, the baseline standard of dentistry sort of around the world because of social media, because of podcasts, because of YouTube, it's just like, it's, it's a, such a higher floor of what acceptable dentistry is nowadays. Absolutely. I mean, and you get exposure to things that you, uh, you know, if you just, if you close yourself off to all these things, you'd just be very narrow-minded. But because of uh, all this, um, and I call it noise, because it is noise, because there's so much of it now, right? Yeah. You're getting bombarded. It's like over-stimulus. And it's, it's a double-edged sword, because yeah. um, it, I know some dentists who get uh, affected in terms of their mental health because they see all these amazing cases constantly, constantly. Oh, this dentist is doing smiles all day long. This dentist is living the, their life. You know, they post up this uh, full mouth rehab, then they're driving their Ferrari or whatever. <laughs> and, and that's not, that's not the, what I mean when I say it's the best time to be a dentist. What I mean yeah. is, if, if Omid, if you, I, if you and me needed help from someone on a clinical case, yeah. we are click away, right? There's mm -hmm. so much mentorship. There's so many helpful, lovely dentists out there who will always help out someone who's um, yeah. less experienced or just needs a hand. So because of that element, there's, it, it almost accelerates your growth. It's like rocket fuel, right? So yeah. now we have this rocket fuel all around us. It is a double-edged sword, like I said, but I think it's never been a better time to, to, for, to, to be a dentist who wants to learn and grow. I think that's yeah. the main message. No, I, I can definitely attend to that I've, and I've, I've personally been through that side of um, you know a few years ago when I sort of moved back uh, to Australia from Canada I had to wait like three or four months uh, to get like all my uh, licensing and stuff sorted out and I just couldn't be on dental Instagram anymore because it was like every day I'm like at home and I see everyone you know like I said you know, posting all these cases and stuff and it's really starting to like sort of affect me in a, in a, in a negative way there so I, I definitely need, I think people need to be careful and need to know sort of the work that goes on behind the scenes to produce this dentistry. So they, you know, a new grad will think, oh yeah, I can wake up and do, you know, prep for like eight veneers, like on my first, first you know, month out of dental school, not knowing the amount of work that's gone, you know, in terms of planning, in terms of um, the courses, the mentorship that these clinicians have had before they've started doing these kind of things. But you're right. I think if you're a willing participant, if you're not like passive um, and if you're actively seeking out mentorship and things, best time to be a dentist for sure. And I think that needs to be said. I'm so glad you mentioned it, Omid, because there's so much doom and gloom. Like we talked about on my <laughs> podcast when he came on, like morale in dentistry in UK was is, is quite low. I think it's improving yeah. a little bit, but it's quite quite low. And therefore, this message needs to be sent out, especially the new grads that don't worry. I know we had a tough couple of years in terms of your training as well, yeah. but help is all around us. You just got to open yourself up to it and you will find it. Yeah. And technology is helping a lot too. I think with, mm. with the, the aid of technology, the predictability of harder stuff is getting more like, 
the, the band of like variability is getting less and less because you can do things more predictably with technology. So I think as that gets more adoption sort of, or it becomes more affordable. So like every dentist, um, uh, I know like the public stuff in, in, in the UK is a lot as well, just public in, in Australia as well. But if, if the public sector can even adopt some of these basic technologies like scanners and things like that long-term, um, it'll have a huge impact in terms of uh, one, like the, the amount of fun you have with, with the technology and then the learning curve that goes with it, but also the work becomes more predictable, which is quite good. So um, I think there's definitely a lot of, uh, a lot of scope to uh to learn and, and do things in a nice you know safe predictable manner so you get good outcomes like we were saying earlier you know innovation happens in private practice hence why sometimes in these hospitals they're late adopters to all these technologies i mean i think it's also not good to be too early of an adopter yeah. right uh but but you know i think it's great with all the the toys that we have available uh, which makes dentistry easier and the scanner has been uh, absolutely amazing i don't know are you are you scanning yet yeah, I'm scanning. I, I have. I the only time I take uh, like impressions now is pretty much if I'm just gonna make like a like a, a whitening tray or like a SX retainer for someone as like an interim sort of thing. But um, uh, and we'll get into it when we talk about the occlusal splints and stuff. Even uh, we're like 3D printing our own splints now in our new practice Amazing. that I'm working at. So it's pretty cool. Um, all right, so let's let's get into the work life side of things a little bit. Uh, I know this is a topic that we've uh, we touched on uh, on your podcast a little bit as well, and I've I've sort of gone you know, ups and downs with this where I'm working too much and then I get burnt out and I'm like, no, no, I need to like, you know, take my foot off the gas and I'll, I'll, I'll cut down um, or I'll change sort of uh, jobs for a bit. And then you fall back into the same old habits and traps again. So tell me a little bit about your journey with work-life balance, uh, where you're at now and sort of what, I guess, like new insights you've had since you've sort of, you know, shifted the, 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 the work-life balance in terms of the, the life side a bit. Absolutely. Well, I think the, the best way to describe it is phases. And I think in the initial phase, and um, this was like excessive, but I was uh, breathing, living, sleeping, eating dentistry for the first three years post-qualification. Like I went to every single free course. We call it like section 63 courses. Like there's loads yeah. of free courses, webinars. There weren't so many webinars then as there are now, like obviously eight years ago because of COVID and stuff. Yeah. Uh, but but yeah, as anything that was there that was cheap or free, um, I was going on, right? And it was like, daily on a daily basis after work i'd go to some sort of educational went because i've i was so hungry for yeah. knowledge i was so willing to learn and i think for those who are willing to learn um great things will happen it will you know elevate your dentistry big time so i was i was very much learning 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 working like a dog uh, then i was working in hostels and also uh, working on the weekends to keep my hands in, pra in, in practice because yeah. the danger of working in hospital is you de-skill and you slow down yeah. right so i want yeah. to avoid that so that was that phase and then obviously singapore happened which was fun and stuff and then i had like imposter syndrome because i'm like oh my god i'm about to go into full-time private practice even though this is all like this is what i wanted and i was working really hard toward attaining this actually going into private practice in, in the uk anyway for me it was like oh my god am i good enough kind of thing right best move i ever did i'm very much a general dentist and i look back at why i've I do the procedures that I do now. Uh, and I, I think sometimes only when you look backwards can you connect the dots. So for yeah. me, it's like uh, orthodontics. I like doing orthodontics. I did a diploma in orthodontics uh, and I love ending inclusion TMD. But interestingly, those were the two things that were my weak points during den school. Those are the two things okay, that confused me the most. Like at the ortho yeah. clinics, I was like, what the hell is going on? Uh, <laughs> and then occlusion TMD, I think we're all confused, right? When we come out. Yeah. And I think personally that inside me is th this kind of perfectionist personality, right? Like I hated the fact that I had this big weakness. So maybe that's why I've, I've sort of, you know, pursued this. But anyway, mm -hmm. coming back on track on work-life balance, I was telling you earlier that having a, a child sometimes changes everything. So 
while my wife was, wife was pregnant, I was working in Oxford from London. So it's about an hour and something commute there. Uh, I'd go early in the morning. I'd play squash in the morning before work with my nice. principal. Would have a day of work. By the time I get home, it'd be like seven. So, you know, seven to seven, 12 hours, I'm not there. So wife's pregnant. And she says to me, Jazz, you do know that babies, um, they like, you know, wake up <laughs> around about six, seven. And they go to sleep at seven. I'm like, holy crap. And she's like, yes, you know, how are you going to make time for our child yeah. if you're working like this? And so I had to do something, right? So I had mm -hmm. to do something. And that was, a, and I'm so glad this happened. And, it, and I, I left an associate position. I, I, I changed my hours. And eventually I changed practices so that now, Omid, I have a three-minute commute. Perfect. We work in a practice which is shift pattern. So either I work a morning or an afternoon. It's like a five and a half, six-hour thing. And on most days, I get to bathe my son. So for me, it, 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 it's a great blessing. I'm very privileged, privileged for that. But it took a lot of hard work because I had to really desire it like everything is created twice right yeah. once in the mind and then once in reality so I'm the bad. message there for anyone is like what is it decide you know how much do you want to how much do you want to earn what what is a comfortable amount for you how can you make it happen working least days as possible or least sessions possible or reducing your commute as much as possible if your commute is is burning you out yeah and then work backwards and make it happen you just got to make it happen right yeah i love that so much the the reverse engineering um because i think a lot of people they'll go to that first step, right? Like they'll be like, oh, I don't like enjoy my job or I'm working too much. But then they just leave it at that. Like they don't, they don't take that ownership to be like, no, if, it, if anything's going to change, it's going to be coming from me initiating that change. And I need to be the one who takes steps to get this to happen. And I think that's one of the like, dentistry in, in particular, like it's, it's almost, and once you have some, you know, maybe when you're a new grad, you have like less options in terms of jobs and, um, you know, you're not as in demand as you might be, maybe if you're like an associate who has like five or six, because like you as an associate are like a gold mine to the practice owner as well, right? So you have a lot of leverage in these situations when you come into the practice, like I have all these skills, I have all this network and I can bring this to your practice. So you can have a little bit more sort of uh, negotiating power than maybe mm. a new grad. But um, if you're in this stage of life where you have some choice, dentistry is probably one of the best jobs because you can very easily be like, I want to work in this neighborhood. I'll reach out to these four practices. And then within a, like a few weeks, you can have a job and you're you know, working and you're producing money. And uh, so, but I think it just takes that, that you need that initiative to be like, I, I'm, I don't want this life that I'm working like five, six days, seven days a week, whatever it is, late nights, or I'm working Saturdays um, and taking that ownership. Like, no, I want to work Monday, Wednesday, Friday. This is my non-negotiables. And then just working towards that, even though it might be a bit of a downturn in your income initially, and then it'll sort of bounce back and you recalibrate from there. But uh, I think it's, it takes a lot of uh, courage at the start, but I think being uh, someone who, you know, you've taken the leap and you know, start a podcast and do all these things and putting yourself out there. It's a little bit easier because you do have that mindset shift of like, I can accomplish X, Y, and Z. And all those courses that are done behind me, like yeah. so much education. And like, you know, sometimes you do think, oh, have I done, have I wasted money doing this course? Or have I wasted time doing this course? But ultimately, eventually, you will put it to use. You should. Yeah. It's going to be stored somewhere. You've got to apply it ASAP. But yeah. a lot of the, I've never regretted any new education or knowledge I've gained. So I think that's a, a bank. That's something that you can grow and grow and grow. And it'll always be useful. So uh, always being on a path of learning new things. But one thing to mention, actually, Omid, is you mentioned about a new grad may not be able to have enough leverage as perhaps someone more experienced uh, could do. And I think that's a reality. And I think there's something to be said about the whole 10,000 hour rule, right? Like yeah. you need 10,000 hours or whatever of, of, of purposeful graft to master yeah. your skills. So I think don't feel too disheartened if you are a young dentist uh, in a high volume practice, right? Because 
you need to, to see those cases. You need to see repetition of drilling carriers, yeah. you know, basic things, extractions, get those, get hundreds, thousands under your belt and yeah. then become good and then become fast. And then you can transfer those skills when you've got more experience and courses under your belt. So don't, don't be too disheartened if you're a young dentist in a, in a tough place, but you are seeing volume dentistry because you can uh, see that as a good thing and gain from it. Yeah, I think one trap though to avoid with that situation, because I, I do agree with you for sure, is not to build bad habits. Because I, when I when I first started out, I was working, uh, you know, I'm working in this practice and high volume practices back in, when I was working in Canada. Really busy, you know, high volume practice. But like, I'm comparing myself to like the principal who's got 20 years of experience. So he's, you know, pumping out like, you know, all these restorations in like 10, 15 minutes. And I'm trying to do the same, but I'm like, I can't because I don't have the hand skills or like the, the workflow or the systems in place. So I'm just doing bad work. And then that you have got, you got to stop yourself as that too. Because if otherwise you get into the habit of like, oh, if he's doing it in 30 minutes, I should be doing it in 30 minutes. And then it just, it, that's a big that's a recipe for disaster for new grads. So I think don't uh, compare yourself to like people with way more experience because there's a huge, mm. it's a huge difference in that, in that realm of like experience, you know, your hand skills, uh, but yeah, building those bad habits and letting your standard of acceptable work drop, especially early in your career could be a bad, bad thing. And something that can happen like this and you won't even realize it, right? Yeah. Like you start cutting these corners and then it'll become a habit. And then the nurse will expect you to cut corners and not use rubber dam and this kind of yeah. stuff. And, uh, and then like when the opportunity arises and suddenly you're looking at this uh, leveling up or stepping up to a, a bigger, better private practice, whatever it might be, the opportunity comes. And then maybe what, by then, you, you haven't applied the high-end skills anymore and you mm -hmm. lose it. So you're so right, man. You've got to sometimes just slow down uh, and, and make sure you hone your skills. Everything will come with time, not to rush it. Yeah, for sure. I think it's like any anything in life, like you said, the 10,000-hour 10, rules, you got to put the time into to get good at it. Even now, like, I mean, I'm sure even you have cases where, uh, it's actually an interesting thing I'll ask you is because uh, I'm finding this because you, know, you know we touched on earlier about the working in the hospital and you lose your other skills and you kind of de-skill because that happened to me so I was you know doing like 18 months of just pure oral surgery um, so I hadn't done like a filling or like a you know a crown and like crown prep in like 18 months so now I'm sort of going through that initial frustration phase where I'm like my hands don't do what my eyes want them to do and I'm still kind of ramping that hand skill back up uh, but what I find which is interesting is uh, talking about the soccer like you know uh, form is temporary classes forever type thing but i'm i'm, I'm still very like form based like i'll have i have like a really good week where like everything i'm touching just like looks beautiful and i'm like <laughs> confident and then the other week and then i'll do like a bad filling or like just like the contour is not good um and then i'll have like one or two things that kind of cascade and my form dips and i don't feel as comfortable like with like what i'm doing so i wonder like do you still because you've been you know doing this for a bit longer and more consistently than i have but do you find you have ebb and flow of like form of like how good your dentistry is or is it pretty consistent now okay i think now it's uh, it's all about uh, it's all about case selection so i know where my uh, weaknesses are uh, and then in those cases where it's going beyond your comfort zone then for that uh, thing it's about realizing that you need extra time and i think time can do wonders for you Huge. so uh, having that self-awareness and booking extra time uh, to do that uh, and the thing that's really elevated my dentistry and all my colleagues who, who do it is and i'm sure you do it as well is taking photos step by step by step and critiquing it uh, so i mean the, the short answer is it is much more consistent now because what we have, what you develop in time is protocols. Okay. Yeah. If this, then that, then this, then that. And once you've got protocols in, uh, in place, 
everything has becomes easier. Even your nurse, which is so important. Having a good nurse is like the most important thing ever. Um, it could really make a difference to the quality of dentistry. Now, of course, you can have a bad day that you have a bit of a cold or um, uh, you woke up on the wrong side of the bed or whatever, and you won't be performing on your best. And that's human. And that's okay. It's okay to admit that sometimes you're not going to be at your best and to, to be human with yourself. Uh, but I think you do. I think I have found that the, the frequency of the ebbs and flows decreases with time, but yeah. you still get those bad days. And that's completely okay. Okay. And sometimes, you know, if you do something wrong, just put it right, do the best you can, uh, make it up to your patient in any way. Yeah, no, that's great. I think, I think that's a, a big thing you touched on there is the um, being able to synthesize information quickly. Uh, one of my like surgical mentors at the hospital, that was like, it's like one of the underrated things of being like a good surgeon or a good clinician is being able to take a lot of inputs and make a quick decision of like, all this is happening, I need to do this. So I think that's a really good point. And that's the only thing that just comes with experience. Like you would have, well, I've seen this a hundred times. I need to put my matrix this way, or I need to adapt my, uh, you know, uh, wedge this way. And then that's like the decision-making that maybe a newer grad or a younger clinician, like may not have that input, like uh, ability to synthesize that information and it kind of gets them stuck there. Um, can can I make that really yeah. tangible that, that one point actually? Yeah. So that you, you mentioned wedges and stuff. So a real great example of that is, when you're starting out with class twos and then you want to improve your class twos and you want, you want to invest in a sectional matrix uh, kit. Mm -hmm. And then, then you learn eventually that actually there's no one system that's best for all cavity shapes. <laughs> and then eventually you realize that un until you remove that papilla, because you carry so deep, you, you can't actually get a decent wedge in there. So yeah. you have to sometimes go through these failures. But now with like courses and education, it can accelerate um, what, what you can learn. And even on Facebook, Facebook University, people yeah. are posting step-by-step <laughs> -step full yeah. protocol cases. You can learn so much from that. So I think my challenge is at the beginning, you know, is that not knowing that I had to remove that papilla with a thermocut burr or something to allow my matrix to seat. So now just you, you've raised a great point about that surgeon that taught you. Now these things are automatic because I've been here. I've been in this yeah. awkward scenario before. So I know to do this and this is going to yeah. save me five minutes of heartbreak. Yeah. Even like, I remember when I, when I first started, like, graduated, I would like, you know, I would prep a class two and like, you know, like on, on the, like the peripheral walls, you haven't like clear the contact. So like your matrix is just like not even clearing. And it's yes. been like five minutes. I'm like trying to like, I'm like, now I'm just like, just cut it. Just like open it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yep, yep. yeah it's, or it's, or yeah, it's you're trying me. to cut a crown off. You're trying to cut a crown off. Uh, and, and then you just do a little bit. And then you, you see, okay, let me try and see if I can split it. But you just yeah. break the ceramic off. You still got the metal. Then you just draw some more. And then you try and break it. Just cut the whole thing off and then slip it. You know, it's these little <laughs> things, little struggles you have to go through until you remove all that metal. It's not coming yeah. off. Yeah, no, it's, uh, I love that. It's, and it's just reps. It's just reps. It's a, it's just making mistakes, reps. figuring it out it's on the reps. fly. And, and, you know, like to your point of like documentation of, um, if you have a great memory, you'll remember it, but if not just take like having photos and be like, yes. So if I'm doing this and this happens, I've done this and it worked successfully. Let me try that. And like, everyone's got their little tools and like, you know, to, uh, tricks up their, up their sleeve as well. But, um, yeah, just the joys of dentistry, I guess. <laughs> uh, Omid, do you do, I feel like you're the kind of guy who would do journals and stuff. Do you still, do you, do you journal? I, I do. I've, I, you know, to be honest, it's not as consistent as I used to be in terms of like my, my routine with it, but I do journal. If I don't do it every day, I'll, I'll sort of, I'll do like a sort of a weekly catch up and I'll just review the last week and things. It's less clinical though, than, and just more sort of just general life things and goals and all that kind of stuff. And like headspace, like where things are at. Um, but I, that's, that's probably one of the best things I've done in the sense of tracking change. Um, and I, I love one of my favorite things to do, like if I have just like a, some time off is I'll flip back and I'll go back like six months or a year or two years and I'll read sort of 
what like I was like my struggle was or like what I was stressed about or like what my goals were. Um, and then it's cool to like, be like, oh, wow, that was like a thing. And I've like I've accomplished that or I, like, we got through that and survived that or grew from that, learned from that. Um, so it's definitely a good tool. Do you do you journal yourself? Uh, the point I was going to make is, I mean, I, I do journal like life journaling, which is good to do. But I think in my first five years, um, I was really good at reflecting and journaling. And when I did make a clinical mistake or something took me longer and I ran 20 minutes late, I sort of it's good to just write down what lesson you learned from that. Yeah. And eventually you build this bank. And just like you said, the reps. Right. And I think sometimes by reflecting and journaling these uh, the more clinical side of things, as well as for, for mental health, doing life as well, like journaling is such a beautiful thing to do. But for clinical dentistry, it also has a place. Uh, yeah. And I think I think in the UK, we're very good at uh, encouraging new grants to uh, carry out reflective. We're being a reflective yeah. learner. So just really want to just plug that as well. I think it's a, it's yeah, a good no. thing to do when you're uh, in the struggles. Yeah, definitely a great idea. And I think um, understanding that like the learning curve of everything like there'll be that initial sort of the frustration phase and then you kind of get over that and you get that the first wave of confidence and then there'll be like new challenge so it's just it's never it's never a linear process either you're just gonna have up and down in terms of uh, your learning and your success with cases and things like that so um i think if you're not stressed maybe it's a sign that you're not like pushing yourself enough either like you're just kind of doing which is like i said there's no harm in that but i think if you're a person who wants to be growing clinically um there will be periods of time where you have that initial learning curve and so like a bit of frustration. I think an oral surgeon once taught me that never ever stagnate in your career yeah. because although you said, yeah, it's okay to just coast like, okay, fine. If you want to coast and uh, do dentistry within your little bubble that you're, you're comfortable doing, that's a, that's a beautiful thing. But eventually you'll be clock watching. You might get bored. So it's important. I think just professionally, just to inch a little bit out of your comfort zone, Always, even though you're like, you know, comfortable in life, you've got enough money, you got, you, 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 worry, you know, you want to just look after your children and you want to go home and not have to think yeah. about dentistry. Fine. Fair enough. But it's still to, to keep the magic of dentistry alive. You've got to yeah. fall in love with the detail and, 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 and still push yourself, I think. Yeah, I think that's 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 one sort of main tool that I've used to kind of uh, stick with it sometimes is, you know, flipping my focus to the art of it, of, you know, the craft of getting better. Like that's sort of like what. Because the day-to-day, like you come, might be doing the same thing over and over again. You kind of get bored of it or you, it's becoming a bit mundane. And uh, But it's like, let me focus on the craft. Let me like make those incremental improvements. And even if it's like the same, if I'm not, you know, doing crazy, like full arch cases and stuff, even if I'm, you know, doing a single crown, let me like get this as perfect as I can get it over the next year. And then I'll add on to that and I'll go on to the next thing and I'll progress from there. So I think that's, that's like one way I've found of sort of coping with like, maybe the the day-to-day dentistry sort of downside but what's your strategy for uh, and you have a lot of positive energy so i know i know you love dentistry and like a lot of people do but a lot of people sort of maybe don't or they're like they're struggling to find that sort of spark or that passion how do you cope with like a rough day or a rough week in terms of uh, i know reflection and journaling is one side of it but just like you know a bad patient or you have a bad encounter with someone or a bad procedure outcome that you didn't uh, want how do you sort of what's your coping mechanisms and do you have any tips for for listeners on that side of things? That's an awesome question. I think uh, it, it, we all experience it. And uh, although I've never had a formal complaint, touch wood, um, <laughs> people, you know, you, some things go wrong and then, yeah. you know, you will get I, I, I get sleepless nights sometimes. OK, it mm-hmm. hasn't happened in about a year and a half, two, three years now, which is great, but it's going to come. Right. Something will go wrong. And because I care, because I genuinely care. I will, I will get worried because I, I care for the patient. And then um, sometimes dentists get some sleepless nights and it's a reality we face every day. 
So uh, how do we cope with that? I think firstly, you have to do whatever you can to get it out of your system and talk it out. So uh, my wife's a dentist as well. Now she's a completely different dentist to me. I'm like focusing on the, on the microns and she's children, chasing children with fluoride, right? So <laughs> it's like a macro and a micro at a different level. So sometimes talking it out. So uh, whether it's on a, a forum of dentists or your best friend or someone, I think mm. talking therapy, which is essentially like a, a form of cognitive behavioral therapy is yeah. so good because Otherwise, the, the dan most dangerous thing that can happen in dentistry is that you start to feel isolated and mm. it's just you and your nurse and there's four walls uh, and then you see so your thoughts and your worries and your anxieties. So I think you must uh, talk it out and then also think about um, incorporating mindfulness into your routine. Um, and, and, and that is, I think, such a, a great thing that's boomed in the last 10 years. Uh, yeah. And it's such a, a great thing to have because things will go wrong and we need coping strategies. And that is a really good coping strategy, I think. Yeah, I really like that. What's your, you mentioned earlier, having a good nurse is really important. How do you find, you know, because as an associate as well, like, you know, you know, in that work dynamic, you're not necessarily like their, their boss or like you're their employer or something. How do you work with like a new nurse in terms of training them up and, um, and getting them to work within the workflow that you want to work with? Because that's something that I'm, I've got a new nurse now and I'm new at the practice as well, right? So I'm, I don't, I'm not 100% familiar with every, where everything is or, so we're kind of learning together. And I thought it'd be, I, I'm, working on my leadership because they might do something wrong and you get frustrated, right? But if you don't vocalize why you're frustrated or you didn't give me this when I needed it or you put out the wrong equipment or the wrong material, um, you need to communicate that. Otherwise, it'll just keep happening and then you keep getting more and more frustrated and go down that sort of uh, vicious circle. How's your, in terms of strategies or tips in terms of working or coaching up a nurse, do you have any good ones? Yeah, I think the most important thing is uh, what is the one thing that nurses crave, that nurses want with dentists? Uh, it is consistency because the, the the job of a nurse, like she has or he or she has to uh, set up the tray. Uh, and when you're done with the procedure, they start their next job. They have to then you know clean up, tidy up. And, you know, they're so, so key in the role and also in comforting the patient, speaking to the patient, a huge role that they play in our day-to-day -day dentistry. So the, the thing that they, all, they find annoying is that if you are a dentist who lacks protocols uh, and then your nurse, she just he or she wants to just set things up and make you happy. But then every every time you do a composite, you do it differently. You use a different composite. You use different instruments. You sometimes air braid. Sometimes you don't and you don't have a clear system that will stress the life out of your nurse because this is why nurses hate working with multiple different dentists because we all yeah. do things differently so yeah. if you want to keep your nurse happy involve them and and tell them why so so i like for example when i do a vertical crown prep my nurse knows my exact protocol and why i am not using rubber dam for a vertical but when i'm doing a, a, an emax onlay she knows that i'll be using rubber dam and it's about putting in the hard work and front loading the hard work at the beginning to educate your nurse about your philosophy and why you're doing it. And you know what? It's amazing. Nurses will sometimes say to you, you know what? No dentist ever taken some time to actually explain to me why they're doing it. So mm -hmm. I think they would love that. I think just giving some more time and, and, and respecting them as, and, as, and their intellect as well. Yeah, no, that's a great tip. I think that's something that a lot of um, successful dentists do. They really involve the team in treatment, diagnosis, They'll show them, they'll, they'll call them in, like the, the principal dentist I work for, he does sort of like, I think like all surgery and stuff, like I said, but like if, if something's cool, like he'll literally like, he'll call the front desk receptionist, he'll call the hygienist, like come have a look at this, then he'll talk him through it, That's which I, I think it's like a really cool thing to like involve the team. So everyone's on board with the treatment and the treatment outcomes and things like and that. And the so. patient thinks you're awesome. So this, is a, this yeah. is a secret communication tip, right? Like when I have a new nurse with me, I will say, 
um, I, I will say, uh, Yasmin, can you see this? This color of dentine is, is this. Uh, and this is, this is why I etch this for 15 seconds and I don't etch this. And the, and the patient's hearing this. And the patient's like, wow, this dentist is so knowledgeable, even though it's like basic stuff, right? Yeah. <laughs> but, but the patient's also part of this. And you're like, wow, this dentist is, is taking so much care and attention. And, and, and they're, they're there. They're, they're like a fly on the wall. They're, they're listening to these things. So mm-hmm. um, I think it's, it's a great communication thing sometimes to tell the, the, pa- the nurse, but really you want the patient to hear what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great thing. And you see this, Yasmin, this is a really deep decay. Like this is really <laughs> close to the nerve. And then when you come back later, the patient will remember. Yeah. And they're great. <laughs> no, that's a great tip. I think it's, it's really important that communication piece of it and getting the, the nurse involved and because um, it, it engages them as well. They're not just passively standing there, like holding the suction out. Like they're like, okay, this is what we're doing. This is what the goal of the treatment is. This is why we're doing it. So um, great tip. All right. Let's uh, let's shift over to the little bit of clinical stuff. Then uh, talk me through sort of when and why you talk to your patient or prescribe uh, like an occlusal splint for them. Okay. Thank you for changing the term night guard yeah. to an occlusal splint. Okay. Yes. So, I've learned. I'm re- I, I, <laughs> <laughs> no, there's nothing wrong with that. Man. I'm just kidding with you. Um, no, no, it's- so that's, that's a big high level question. Yeah. Uh, let's break it down. I think the most confusing thing for most dentists, including for me is like which splint when and why. Okay. Uh, and I think the the problem lies with the fact that, a lot of the times, dentists, when we come to the diagnosis stage, we just write TMD. And, and, and that's supposed to be its all-encompassing diagnosis. But, but within TMD, there are uh, TMD is an umbrella term, and there's so many different yeah. diagnoses within it. And I'm going to come on to maybe uh, you know, what different types there are and, and how we can manage it differently. But the, the, the big problem here is that the evidence base is really poor when it comes to TMD. Mm-hmm. The evidence base for um, uh, splints is pretty much non-existent. Yes, there are some papers about Michigan splints and, and soft bite guards, some good, some bad. They will conflict each other, but the end numbers are all low. The quality of evidence is really bad, uh, and, and, and therefore, we really struggle as dentists. So the, when we're at dental school, we really don't get much experience. We don't yeah. prescribe any appliances, uh, and, and then we learn. We go on all these different occlusion courses, and then the occlusal splints bit is in the last one hour of like a seven-day <laughs> continuum, and someone just says, okay, just make a Michigan, and that's it, and then soft, don't, make, don't ever make a soft bite guard. But yeah. when we come to practice, the most commonly prescribed occlusal appliance is the humble soft bite guard. So it's like this massive level of confusion, and I think it all starts with a, a lack of knowledge about how to make a good diagnosis. Yeah. Um, so... Do you have any specific questions on that or should we to go into let's go into uh, any direction you want? Let's go into the diagnosis side first. So uh, patient walk. So I guess like when we look at it, there'll be, I think there'll be two ways that dentists look at this. Right. And I'll, I'll try and frame it that way. Like one is the patient comes in with like TMD symptoms, you know, they got pain, pain on opening, limited opening, they got tight muscles, they wake up with headaches and things. So there's that extra oral aspect of it maybe. And then there'll be the intro, like the patient walks in, they got wear on their teeth, they got wear facets. Um, they got cracks. So you're like, oh, we need to put something in to protect the teeth. So how do you mm. break that break that up first? And then we'll kind of go down each, I guess, rabbit hole. Okay. That's an excellent question because essentially what you're leading to is two different things. So uh, why do we give appliances? Uh, we give appliances because sometimes we're trying to diagnose something, i.e. Uh, is there occlusion or their bruxing anything to do with their pain? Uh, if you give appliance A and their pain improves, then we can think, okay, maybe there's a link. So, or maybe you're trying to uh, deprogram the muscles 
before you take a byte record so you can do more complex dentistry. So sometimes you're figuring something out and you might give an appliance like that. So that's the easy patient. That's the easiest time because it's a short-term appliance and we can come to Lucia jigs and whatever, uh, yeah. all like that. But then the two types of patients you, may, uh, you mentioned there is the pain patient and the protective patient. So the pain patients are the really, or can be the really complex ones. Yeah. But if you are a clever general dentist uh, and you look for certain signs and symptoms uh, and then you do some basic muscle checks, uh, uh, you can cherry pick uh, your cases as a GDP uh, yeah. and you can get really high success rates because essentially they, they, these, a lot of these pain patients have myofacial pain, which is different to someone who may be having an intracapsular issue. So already let's talk about TMD. Yeah. Three main types. Now, if you look at the research diagnostic criteria, there's like so many different types of TMD, but it can be broken into three main types, which is muscular in origin. So their muscles are hurting intracapsular so something is happening within that yeah. small space of the condyle and the disc so that's when someone's got like locking and popping and their jaw is catching and you've got the limited movement due to the the disc being like an obstruction okay yeah. and that's a different patient to someone who's just getting headaches and jaw ache uh, and then they're getting spasms and whatever that's that's a different patient and both of these patients are different to that patient who we see so much of like you uh, leading to earlier about um during covid we see so many more cracks so many bruxes are coming out of the surface and whatnot uh, and a lot of these patients because they don't realize they have an issue it's very difficult to then suggest to them any treatment mm -hmm. So where does that lie? So I think the, the, the basic thing to understand is the term bruxism is, is almost like a, it's a dirty word, right? You yeah. can term someone a bruxist, but actually most people, okay, every night, most people will, 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 will brux, okay, between three and 15 minutes a night, okay? Uh, and it's those 15 minute plus grinders who've got the strong muscles, okay, who may be overloading their system. These are the true bruxists. Yeah. And maybe they only make up less than 10% of our population. Okay. They're the ones who are cracking, destroying dentistry, having, uh, they're the ones with a huge hypertrophic masters. Whereas most of us, we do rhythmic masticatory muscle activity. Okay. And, and that's acceptable. So you have to look at the age of the patient. So if you take that protective patient, look at the age of the patient. If they're 60, 55, 70, uh, and yes, they get some wear, and maybe they haven't got that much dentine exposure, then why are we doing anything? right? Yeah. If it's consistent. So uh, you, you got to bring the age of the patient into it when you're looking at that clinical scenario. And the pain patient is, is a tough patient because when pain has been there for longer than six months, there's something called chronicity. Yeah. Pain becomes chronic. And it's, it's like, like if my finger is hurting, the pain signals are being sent from the finger to the brain, but eventually the, 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 the cut on my finger has healed. But because the pain has been there for longer than six months, that those pathways are still firing mm -hmm. and when um when we look at musculoskeletal pain in the body like back pain chronic back pain there's a lot of similarities there between back pain and tmd in terms of the chronicity of pain so yeah. so pain longer than six months becomes more complicated and there's no studies to prove yet saying that okay this type of pain this appliance so this is all stuff that i've learned from lots of mentors hundreds maybe thousands of appliances now uh coloring in the splints seeing their parafunctional pattern seeing what kind and lots of failures lots and lots of failures along the way yeah. to come up with some sort of system to decide who needs what yeah so uh, talk me through that who needs what system or like how, mm -hmm. how do you decide that okay. 
Okay, so I've got like a, a, a flowchart that someone could download. I think it's the protrusive.co.uk forward slash flowchart. And I'll, I'll say the proper- Yeah, I'll put it in the show notes. Put yeah. it and, and then you can literally download the flowchart that, uh, that, that, yes. I, that I teach and I, and I show. And it's got like, you know, if this issue, so for example, if they've got normal bruxism, so that three minute grinder at night, uh, not significant muscles, not breaking anything, then, you know, monitoring and you might then give a simple appliance. Now for that protective patient, okay, any appliance will work. For that non-pain patient, you can give whatever you want. You can give an upper and lower, and one of my favorites is an upper and lower passive fitting Essex retainer. What I mean by passive fitting is like the, the technician has blocked out the undercuts. Like you don't want it to be orthodontic, like tight, yeah. because these patients won't wear it. So just some plastic between the teeth and the teeth will be protected as long as they comply. Yeah. Compliance is a whole nother issue, right? <laughs> so so yeah. so a lot if you go along the flow chart, then you got someone who's got myofacial pain. So if you, if you feel someone's muscles and people, um, I don't know how many dentists are really palpating the muscles, but the first thing to check is for hypertrophy. Yeah. If, you, if someone's clenching on their masters and you feel a little bulge, that's normal. We, we yeah. should have that. But if you feel like an excessive bulge and a double bulge, that is hypertrophic masters. These patients produce a very high level of force. If they've also got hypertrophic temporalis muscles, significant wear, and then when you palpate these muscles on the origin, the body, and the insertion, and you find that they're tender, it shouldn't be tender. One of the quickest and easiest things you can do is you put a finger on the patient's head, forehead, and you press their forehead, okay? And then you tell the patient, okay, this is how much force I'm putting, okay? Does this hurt? And the patients say, no, it feels fine. And that same amount of force you then put on the muscles. And if they start saying, ouch, okay, those muscles, just like the, the forehead, shouldn't be hurting, yeah. but they are. So now you've, you're coming into the, the territory of the of this diagnosis you're making of myofacial pain. Mm -hmm. So if you've got that patient who's complaining of headaches, who's got signs of wear, who's got tongue scalloping, cheek ridging, who's got yeah. large muscles, okay, then you can kill two birds with one stone by help to manage their bruxism. And I say manage because you can't stop their bruxism by yeah. giving an appliance, that's been proven. But you can manage it by them wearing certain appliances. So my preferred appliance for someone with myofacial pain, now it's difficult to go too, too deep into this, yeah. but like on the whole, there will be certain exclusions and reasons why you wouldn't give it but anterior midpoint stop appliances now when i say that do you know what i mean by that Amit? no let's get into that okay so like ntis and that kind of stuff yeah. so uh, uh, you know traditionally these are like little fiddly little uh, appliances yeah. which i used to loads of now i don't do so much because you can have the same all the benefits of that appliance i.e the front teeth touching the back teeth not touching. And I'll come on to why that's significant, but you can do it in a full archway. So a B-splint, mm -hmm. okay? So yeah. it covers all the upper teeth, for example, but it just has a thick bit at the front so that when the patient bites together, only yeah. the incisors are touching, the back teeth aren't, aren't touching. And everyone can do this now. If, if they feel their back, they feel, if you feel your master's omit, bite on your back teeth, okay? All the yeah. way. And you feel your master's bulge out, okay? Yeah. Now, if you actually get a pencil or something and yeah, bite you on your front teeth, yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you can't do it as much. Your masters, you will, but your temporalis will reduce by about 70%. So we know this from the EMG studies already. Mm. And that's all it takes. When you switch off or you decrease the, the volume or the, the noise or the amplitude of these muscles, then the patients can begin to heal. Then that lactic acid buildup decreases. Uh, and, and, and that's why patients can then move easier. And essentially, some of these patients are like, like you, you get the patient to bite down and, you, and you're checking whether the patient is canine guided or group function, right? Yeah. So you, you might have done this before, I mean, you get them bite together, grind left and right, and, and, and they're not moving. They're, they're still, no, 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 please grind left and right, and they can't yeah. move. <laughs> that, that patient's locked in. Now, yeah. if they've got strong muscles and they're grinding and they're locked in, where's all that pressure going? Yeah. It's being absorbed into their muscles, right? 
when you give that patient an appliance such as that one, which is essentially like an ice rink, it allows them to, allows their jaw to move. It's like taking this huge weight off and now their muscles can, uh, can no longer experience resistance. And that's how essentially in, in a nutshell, how uh, anterior midpoint stop appliances work. Now, Michigans and Tanners, which we were taught at dental school are amazing. They can also work. But here's the problem. I mean, have you done many Michigans and Tanner appliances? Yeah, I mean, that's like the, the standard one you get your time dental school, like you said. So most people would do that. Yeah. The, the issue with those ones is, yes, they can work. But if you're going to do it properly, yeah, okay, you want to use a Facebook, you want to get your records, then you need a patient for you know, two, three adjustments. You got to charge the patient a high amount. The patient says it's bulky. And I used to hate it. Like, I used to give these um, appliances. I used to charge more than 900 pounds or whatever. Six months later, Mrs. Smith would come back. Cause, okay, how's it going? And they say, you know what? I just couldn't wear it. And it's just kept in a drawer somewhere. And that's mm -hmm. really sad. So how can we treat my facial pain with appliances, which are easier to comply with than with a traditional Michigan Nutana uh, that can be um, cheaper for the patients uh, and be more efficient in relaxing the muscles? Because with a Michigan splint, with a Tana splint, they can still on clenching, meet their back teeth together. Yeah. And for some patients who are clenching, that's their downfall. Yeah. So I still use Michigan's and Tana's, there are these dentists who every patient will get a soft splint. Every yeah. patient will get a Michigan or a Tanner. What I'm trying to say is there's different diagnoses and based on diagnoses uh, and whether the patient had has orthodontics or not before, because, you know, uh, I know plenty of dentists who, who don't know about uh, anterior midpoint stop appliances. So what they tell their patients who have had uh, braces before is that, okay, um, uh, one night wear the Essex retainer because you need your orthodontic retention and then the second night wear the splint, right? Well, actually, you can get the benefits of that appliance, but also build in an Essex retainer. Yeah. So there are modifying factors as to why you would give a certain splint to a certain person. And so it, it really and, and for the protective patient, like I said, anything will work. But then you got to be clever, right? If someone's got really high forces, you know that certain things will more likely to break, and you need to optimize the environment. So yeah. um, not as one splint is a magic splint for all. It yeah. depends on the diagnosis. It depends on the malocclusion. There's different types of answers depending on if they got a deep bite or not. So, so this is really, it can get confusing. So it's please broad, do download yeah. the flow chart. <laughs> uh, uh, and, and, but that's what I mean. It's, it's easy just to give everyone a B-splint. It's easy. Yeah. But then you'll get failures. And then you think, why is that? It's because yeah. you're painting everyone with the same brush. So what I like is putting some logic, some science, some experience behind it to come up with a little system or a solution. Uh, what about incorporating sort of... Uh like canine guidance into the splint so you put like that ramps in the anterior section so when they're so they can get into scent like mip but then when they if they're grinding around the posterior teeth disclude as they're sort of uh bruxing around there is that a common one sure. you do so or yeah it, it can be a common one absolutely so for example a typical michigan or michigan or tana has that built in right so mm -hmm. it's got the canine ramp built in so that uh, it essentially is promoting anterior guidance now for someone who is suffering with uh, migraines, um, which can be brought on by myofascial pain, mm -hmm. uh, then the therapeutic protocol, which was developed by the NTI group, Barry Glassman et al., uh, Jim Boyd, is that they found that when you made sure that they, when they were grinding, the canines were not touching, you actually got more success with these pain patients. Because when the canines are touching, so when, you, when, you're, when you're clenching on your molars, you're at 100 percent um emg levels let's say mm -hmm. when your canines are touching you're at 70 percent mm -hmm. as soon as you come to laterals and centrals you're now to 30 percent. so you get a much bigger reduction in yeah. how hard you can clench when you uh, don't include the canines now if you include the canines yeah. and yeah and you bring them down from 100 to 70 
for a lot of people, that will give therapeutic effect mm -hmm. because it's within their now adaptive capacity and it gives the body environment heal. But for some patients, it's still too, they maybe need to be at 57%. I'm just making this stuff up in terms of yeah. percentages. Yeah. But by, 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 by actually getting purely incisor to incisor and not to, uh, involving the canines, that might then fall within the, the uh, adaptive capacity of that patient. That's, that's really So sometimes cool. yes, sometimes not. <laughs> so just like a, as a broad, I know, I know this is not going to be 100% accurate, but in terms of a broad stroke type thing, if there's myofascial components to it, you know, uh, hypertrophic uh, masseters and um, temporalis muscle, the, the midpoint sort of splint is a good way of decreasing that firing activation power of those muscles and might be uh, a good relief. If it's just purely protection, you know, no facial issues, no headaches, no issues with the joints, muscles are fine, but they're sort of, you know, there's some wear and tear on their teeth beyond what you would expect with normal aging and wear and tear, then you can sort of chuck in almost anything in terms of like a Michigan or like even an S6 retainer or a soft splint, um, make it passive. So it's more comfortable for the patient in terms of, um, their compliance with wearing it. And that should sort of, uh, be a good sort of initial a, if A, then B type thing as much. Is that what that yes, sound right? Absolutely. As a general stroke? That's completely yeah. fair, man. That's, that's good. That's a great summary. Uh, and, and I would yeah. agree with you. Uh, but you know, when it comes to someone who's purely protective, then, yeah. you know, some dentists some of my colleagues still give Michigan's. I'm like, why are you charging this patient a thousand pounds? Uh, for a problem that they haven't really uh, registered yet because like I don't grind my teeth like there's a whole communication bit we can talk about uh, as well if you want but like yeah. uh, sometimes something cheap and cheerful that's uh, easy to fit that's plastic to plastic okay mm -hmm. Essex upper uh, Essex lower Essex easy to, easy to fit uh, if they break it if they lose it it's a simple replacement um, it's, it's a good thing to do now going back to that um I mean, you could even give an anterior midpoint stop pliance to someone who, who maybe mm -hmm. has high forces and they might break some other patients. So I had some patients who break Michigan splints because they're contacting on the sevens and, and they really yeah. just uh, crack it at that where it's the thinnest, right? So the, the best thing to do is you color in your amps with a black Sharpie marker and then they go home and they start grinding on it and then they'll see a pattern. And that my friend is co-diagnosis. When the patient emails me a photo of their splint, and says, wow, Dr. Jazz, I can't believe I grind. You were right all along. I'm like, yeah, duh. That's why you're like uh, incisor <laughs> like four millimeters in height. But you know, these patients, they don't know, right? Oh, because my idea. wife yeah. didn't tell me or whatever. Yeah. So when they can see it, then I think compliance improves. Yeah. Uh, so, so there's a whole element of uh, co-diagnosis and getting the patient on board as well. I like that. With these um, anterior midpoint ones, I know like you talked about, and I think we might just for the scope side of things, just not get into like the, the recalibration and deprogramming things. But for these mm -hmm. uh, midpoint ones, how, is that like a long-term wear as well? Like obviously you're covering the posterior so you don't get that like super eruption and stuff if they're going to be wearing it long-term. But um, is that something you would prescribe as like a daily wear sort of going forward? Or is there sort of, you wear that for a little bit if you get improvements then you sort of switch it out to something else? How do you sort of manage that? Okay, so uh, for pain patients, uh, initially I would say, okay, wear it every night. Uh, but also with these pain patients, like what we are led to believe in the past is a biomedical model of TMD, i.e. there's a muscles are, are hurting uh, because of grinding. Uh, and therefore, when we sort that out, the patient will get better or there's inflammation uh, in the joint uh, or the disc is stuck. If you sort that out, the patient will get better. But actually, there's a whole biopsychosocial uh, component to the TMD. It's that pain perception. Like when you give an ID block to someone, right, the same ID block you give someone, someone will be like, wow, that was amazing. I didn't feel a thing. And the other person, you're hovering the needle above them yeah. and they're screaming, you haven't even been in, okay? Yeah. And, they're, and they're screaming. So th this patient's uh, pain perception, there's a reason why TMD affects uh, women nine times more than men. So hormones and genetics and all these kind of things that have to do with it as well. 
So what, what I'm trying to say here is I'm trying, I'm trying to remember the, the the point I was trying to make here. Uh, what, what were we talking about? Sorry. Um, how long you would like uh, prescribe like an anterior midpoint sort of for like the pain patient? So, yeah. yeah. Perfect. So the variability that comes into it. Okay. So everyone is different. Their pain perception is different, right? So for pain patients, I would usually say wear it every night, but also I would make them very aware about the, the very harmful habits of awake bruxism. So a lot of people without realizing will touch their teeth together during the day. And they, they think a lot of patients in the past who I've met, who've got the worst forms, raging muscles. They told me, oh, they thought their teeth were supposed to touch together the whole bloody day. When you teach them that, okay, the mantra is lips together, teeth apart. Sometimes you don't even need a splint. Just that information, seeing a physio, TMD physio, massage, heat application, ibuprofen gel. That's all they need. They don't even need appliance anymore. Because now the, the fact that they're not holding their teeth together for an hour a day is going to heal them. It will come within their adaptive capacity. But alongside that, if they still feel like they need an appliance because there's also uh, damage of uh, evidence of attrition, then I would say, okay, wear it nightly. I'll see you in two weeks. Let's see how we're going. A lot of times they yeah. come back, they show me their parafunctional analysis, like, wow, look, I'm grinding and my headaches are better. And I've got videos after videos or videos of patients saying, yes, I feel great again. Uh, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't realize how heavy my jaw felt before I had this appliance. Yeah. Then I would say to the patient, Let's taper it down now, maybe three or four nights a week, okay? And then if you get through a stressful period or uh, exacerbated period, you can start wearing it more regularly again. And, mm -hmm. and I think that's a beautiful thing because who wants to wear this unnatural piece of plastic every night, right? I use it as a tool to, to, to break that cycle for the patient yeah. and then let them taper it down and up and down to, to their clinical effect. For pain, for, for protective patients, again, it varies, okay? Even if they wear it four or five nights a week, it's going to be better than them grinding really hard. But you just have to taper it the clinical effect, see what it looks like every time they come in, uh, the beauty of doing scans and then comparing the STL files, seeing how much more wear has happened. Yeah. It's amazing. Which scanner are you using, um, Amit? Uh, so we, use, um, we have a Medit and we have a, a Trios, like three shape. Yeah. So I usually yeah. I like the so three shape more. Yeah. I mean, the three shape is great, uh, but the, the, I don't know if you know, but like the three shape, it doesn't have any innate software to compare like one scan to a scan a year later, mm -hmm. right? You, you can't do, do that. Or maybe no, I, don't think so. I haven't seen no. it on the software. Yeah. Whereas uh, the Medit, and, and here's the beautiful thing. You can download, you can get a free account with Medit, even if you don't own a Medit, you can download the Medic link software. And this is a really great pearl. You'll love this, right? You can Im import inside there any STL. Okay, yeah. um, from from two different scanners, three different scanners, whatever, and then it will give you that graph of how much wear has happened. Nice. Okay. So the iTero does this because it's got the time lapse function. But yeah. if you don't have um, the the benefit of iTero, then and you want to compare uh, STL files, then you can do that on the Medit link. Just free download. It's amazing. A good tip. Yeah, for sure. Well, we, well, we can try and get that downloaded. Um, I mean, that's it's really fascinating stuff because I I, I definitely think most dentists just like really underthink the stuff. <laughs> it's just like. Oh, there's a bit of wear, or you got, you know, you're coming in with like tight masseters or sore muscles, just buy a laminar splint, send it to the lab, they'll come back. Yeah. Like don't even, don't even maybe do like a bite reg in like a CR or anything like that. Those kind of just take some upper and lower alginates and send it off. And that's sort of, they're sort of the bandages they stick on everyone. So um, I, I think, and, and I didn't even, you know, you opened that can of worms for me now. I'm like, my mind's a bit blown, but uh, so I'll definitely have to, uh, I'll definitely have to go through the, the workflow, the, the flow chart that you've, uh, you've recommended as yeah, well. Yeah, sure. And, um, I, I think so. Anyone interested, definitely check that out. Um, your courses that you do on this stuff, is it online based or is it in person? It's an, it's an online course. It's a split course. Uh, and basically yeah. it's like 12 plus hours going from the, you know, how to make that diagnosis, what are the special tests you should do, uh, which patient should you treat? And I'm very much like GDP, like, 
like pa patients who are uh, locking very frequently or have got a, a disc displacement without reduction, i.e. they cannot open, they're below 26, below 30 yeah. millimeters opening. As a GDP, do you really want to be treating that? Refer it on. As a GDP, we should be very good at protecting our patients, making diagnostic appliances, helping people with myofacial pain, which thankfully is the most common form of TMD and it's the yeah. easiest to treat alongside physiotherapy and conservative care. And then, yes, there are some patients who got clicking and popping uh, who are maybe at a Piper 3 classification uh, that you can still help with the clues appliances, prevent them getting worse. So it covers all that kind of stuff as well as all the clinical stuff, how to make it, how to deliver it, troubleshooting. So who would have thought that just on splints, you can have 12 plus hours and like <laughs> monthly coaching. So it's quite exhaustive. <laughs> yeah, no, that's awesome. Uh, so I'll put a link in the show notes for that as well. Anyone interested? Um, it's that it's online obviously because then you know everyone from australia and stuff can also check it out and um and learn from it i think it's really useful too and i think it's one of those things where it, it takes the relationship with your patient beyond drilling and filling like they might actually enjoy coming to see you or they value the work because you know you, you can spend you know an hour restoring this like subgingival like class two and the patient doesn't know any better and it was like oh that okay, thank you. And it's like leave and you're, you're proud of the work and, but they don't really see the value, but if you can, you know, help someone's facial pain, they'll, they'll be loyal patients of yours and they'll, they'll sing your praises to everyone. So um, I think that's like a cool sort of additional thing you can add to your sort of day-to-day -day practice that um, will make you happier too, because you get that positive feedback from the patients and, um, and gets you um, sort of going and motivated as well. I think we owe it to our patients that when the patient comes in and in the diary, it says uh, jaw is hurting or TMD, that we don't think, my God, I, I don't know what I'm doing, right? So, yeah. so that's what most dentists like. Uh, and, and then sometimes like dentists will, will ask my help and say, uh, Jazz, I've got a patient with TMD and that's all they say. And they say, <laughs> um, the patient's canine guided on the left and group function on the right. I'm like, okay, uh, what do the muscles feel like? Okay, well, how many millimeters was the range of motion? Uh, so these are the really important things that I'm going to be testing to come up with some sort of a diagnosis and a management plan and knowing when to refer uh, and, and when to treat. So, so that's essentially the, 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 the crux of it. If I can yeah. give one um, sure. really helpful clinical tip to, to, to dentists listening maybe uh, to make it worthwhile listing all this way is soft bite guards are the most common thing over the, in the world in terms of appliance that they describe. Uh, and so uh, they were given a bad name by Oakerson, I think it's 1986, where he had these 10 patients. Okay, so the, the problem is N numbers are really low in these, yeah. in these studies. And what Oakerson found is that when you had someone on a soft bite guard, um, that patients who were asymptomatic may end up becoming symptomatic. Mm -hmm. uh, and it wasn't really great for the muscles. Whereas on the hard occlusal appliance, uh, they got better. But the interesting footnote in that Oakerson study is that um, no attempt was made to balance the splint in any way because Oakerson said it was impossible. Mm -hmm. Now, there was another study in 1996, I think it was, by Wright et al. Uh, and this was a systematic review. And it also looked at soft bite guards versus just advice versus yeah. nothing at all. And it found really, really amazing results with a soft bite guard. So why this difference? Okay, so when you look at the methodology of what the systematic review did is the following. So whereas Okerson said you can't adjust a soft bite guard, this um, systematic review in the journal Oral Facial Pain said you can, and here's how yeah. they did it. You get a four millimeter soft bite guard from your lab, okay? You get a blowtorch uh, or, 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 or a flame and you melt it at the back, just all around, you melt it. You put it inside and you get the patient to bite together until you get indentations pretty much everywhere, okay? Mm -hmm. Now what you have is a pretty much fully balanced splint. Now what you have to do is get an acrylic burr and get rid of the indentations because 
if you don't get rid of the indentations, Locks the patient's cusp yeah. will sit in it and then that will build resistance, okay? That mm -hmm. will make the muscles go crazy. But by removing those indentations, you've essentially created this very balanced flat plane. So now when the patient's br uh, bruxing, you reduce the resistance. So that's how mm -hmm. I think maybe in the paper it helped. So it found that the, the soft bite guard group got, did really well and that was statistically significant. The advice group got better, but it wasn't statistically significant, but the people with no treatment got worse in terms of their myofascial yeah. pain. So the trick there is if you're going to be giving soft bite guards for whatever reason, financial, whatever, it's okay. They can still help, but by melting it, by heating it a little bit and just doing some simple adjustment, it doesn't take long. You can, you might improve your success rates. That's a really good tip. And it's, it's a pretty easy one to do, right? You just yeah, you say heat it up, put it in there, bite together. Heat it um, up. You get like a little bit of melting appearance yeah. of it, and then you just get so the you just need, to you need that initial inside. thickness just to have enough room to then go ahead and do that's that. That's it. Four millimeters. It was what was used in the study, and that's yeah. why I've been using it ever since. Awesome, man. That's that's a lot. I think that's that's more than I thought it would be to be honest in terms of like how much there is to kind of take in. But um, I, I do appreciate it. I think it's important to touch on these things because um, I think it's it's an area that I mean I don't I personally haven't sort of put much time towards in terms of like my CPD allocation and, and learning about um, splints and things. So um, I think it's an area definitely that there is a lot of room for improvement. And then you can get those you know, like we talked about, pass those on to the patients and and get better outcomes and help those patients out that way. So um, I really do appreciate you uh, coming on to share that information and knowledge with us um it's been great you know catching up with you i think it was a good conversation we covered sort of a lot of ground we kind of went on some tangents covered a things, lot of but, broad random themes like yeah, on, the, but, on my podcast well but so that's how i like I enjoyed I, my chat man Thank yeah you. i don't uh that's why i like the uh, sort of the unstructured <laughs> i mean I, I i label it as unstructured mostly just because i don't put in the time to uh, to to, to structure it, <laughs> but um, the free flowing conversation, I think is entertaining and people hopefully uh, got a lot of value out of that. So I really do appreciate it. Well, you're very it. good at getting out of the guests. So well done, my friend. I appreciate it, man. Thanks a lot. I wish you all the best with uh, Patricia Dental and your uh, new newfound work-life balance and your three minute commute. So uh, enjoy it. And um, you, know, you worked hard for it. So why not, uh, why not enjoy it now? I appreciate that very much. Thank you so much. And thank you for all the newbie dentists for listening. We really appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in for another episode of the Newbie Dentist Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe and head over to iTunes and give the show a five-star rating. For all show notes and to access all previous episodes, head over to www.newbiedentist.com. Have a great day.